Our goal really is to return the vision, the cypherpunk vision to individuals. And when we think about the most important use cases on Aztec, I still keep going back to the most basic. I think it is really tempting to come up with these really interesting pie in the sky crypto and Web3 use cases. And I'm happy to get into all of those. I think, among other things, gaming and NFTs is really exciting in a private context. But the most basic use case is still the best, which is being able to transact money permissionlessly, cheaply, and privately. And we're kind of most of the way there now, but not fully. Welcome to The Wild Show with your hosts, Will Chang, Lee Chang, and Andrew Su. Hi, this is Will Chang, and as always, I have my co-hosts, Lee Chang and Andrew Su with me. What's up, guys? Yeah, how's it going? Today, we have John Wu. John Wu is the head of growth at Aztec Network, the privacy layer of Web3. John's in-depth tweets are amazing, and they've helped me understand everything that's been going on in the last couple months with Luna, Terra, 3AC, and Celsius. He recently went on a podcast, Cartoon Avatars, to defend Web3, and it was incredible, uh, and I had to bring him on. Welcome, John. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. So I usually introduce my guests and give some background and context to the audience, but John, you do such a great job of introducing yourself. Do you mind giving us your background and how you got into Web3? Yeah, let's see. Way from the beginning, my joke is always that I was a philosophy major undergrad, but ended up a management consultant anyway. Worked in management consulting for a couple of years. It was one of those love the work, hated the job things where I actually thought the analysis was incredible and it was some of the best business training I've ever had, but realized that we were in the business of making decks, not being intellectually honest. And so I thought going to private equity would be a huge step up in intellectual honesty, which it was because you actually have to own the asset. There's still some distortions of having LPs and investors, but did that for a couple of years. Then I went to business school. So through that period was very much a suit, which for a long time in crypto was not a typical profile. Crypto is like really anti-institutional and you have to have that anti-institutional bone. But after HBS business school, I did a couple startups in real estate and food tech. So real world businesses, really chewed glass and stared into the void, as Elon Musk would say. And then the last startup that I did was a food tech startup that I wound down at the beginning of last year. Unbelievable to think that it was still just one calendar year ago, but that was early 2021. And I immediately fell down the crypto rabbit hole because some folks knew that I was a longtime crypto skeptic. And they said, you know, I think there's finally some use cases here that you might be interested in from a TradFi background. You might want to look into this decentralized finance thing. And I did. And I fell in love with the idea of permissionless markets. And that was that, right? After that, the whole world opened up to me. And there's always something new to learn. So many categories from DeFi to NFTs to DAOs. And I eventually did a short stint at Uniswap. And then after that, decided to go straight to the frontier. And now I've been head of growth at Aztec Network, which is a privacy first zero knowledge roll up for Ethereum. So what do you do for Aztec Network? Yeah, so my title is Growth, which, you know, in a Series A company is really just everything that my colleague Lisa Cuesta, who's head of BD, doesn't do on the external facing side. So I think of this as just meme generation and narrative ownership for Aztec and for privacy. And what made Aztec such an enticing company for you to join? Among other things, one of the most underrated teams in the industry. So our founder and chief scientist, Zach Williamson and Ariel Gabazon. Ariel was previously at Zcash. They essentially invented one of the biggest step function changes in ZK snark technology of the last five years. 
something called Plunk, and it sits under almost every ZK Snark protocol now. And so I think the technical chops of the team was underrated. And I think what it really took to accelerate Aztec going forward was really a little bit more commercial DNA. And then I would also say that Aztec has a very contrarian bet about the future of blockchain, which is that privacy is critical and that it's going to be a private compute paradigm rather than this public compute paradigm that we have. And we can talk about it as we go through the podcast, but privacy is much, much harder in a blockchain context and much more expensive. And we can talk about what Aztec's doing to make it much more accessible to folks and why I think it's important for mass adoption. Yeah, so let's start out with what is Aztec Network? What does it do? Yeah, so we're a privacy-first scaling solution for Ethereum. And so what does that mean? I always find it really helpful to level set everyone on what Ethereum is. And Ethereum is the world computer, right? We all say that. And what is a world computer? It really is this global state machine. And what I mean by state machine is something that takes state or the current status of a bunch of different objects, in this case, accounts. And then it adds a bunch of transactions that are split up into these things called blocks. And then the state transition function deterministically transitions the state from the original state, so the starting state of the accounts, plus the transactions to the ending state of the accounts. And so the way to think about this is, will you have 100 ETH and I have 100 ETH and I send you 50? Well, the state should deterministically increment your account to 150 and decrement my account to 50. And what's beautiful about this machine is that it's fully decentralized and we can all access the same state transition function and see that the state transition correctly. And so why is that cool or relevant? Well, first, it's totally decentralized, which means it's 100% uptime, right? Ethereum's never gone down. And the reason for that is we're replicating this compute across many, many different machines. There's just like hyper, hyper redundancy, tens of thousands of nodes. And by itself, that type of robustness is valuable. Now, is it worth the fact that by some measures, it's 100 million times more expensive than AWS? I think that's something that everyone who looks at blockchain has to think really hard about, which is robustness and 100% uptime and decentralization worth this like mega, mega premium that we're paying. The second thing that's cool is that it's trustless. I don't have to believe that the compute happened faithfully. I can just run my own node and I can observe the state transition function happening and watch the blocks come in and see that everything's being updated appropriately. I don't have to trust some central machine somewhere or a provider or a bank or I can look at it myself. And I think that's a very important part of the Ethereum ethos. And it's fully transparent. And being able to see that being anyone in the world is super critical for Ethereum success. But it comes with a, a bunch of drawbacks too. The first is because it's so redundant, it's really, really expensive to run the Ethereum network. The second is that it's public, right? In order to validate the transition function, we all need to have eyes on it and be like, okay, yeah, this happened appropriately. And that also makes it somewhat unfair because everyone can see the mempool, which is the waiting room for transactions. There's lots of minor extractable value. There's lots of room for front running. And then maybe most importantly of all, there's no discretion, right? Everything I do on Ethereum is fully public. It's auditable by everyone. I can see all of your transaction history since the dawn of time. And that's always visible to everyone. So now that we've like level set on why Ethereum is so cool and what the drawbacks are, Aztec tries to run head on on fixing some of Ethereum's issues. So the first is that it's expensive. And the way we do that as a scaling solution is much like many other 
layer twos you might have heard of on Ethereum, which is we take a bunch of transactions and we batch them together. We execute them offline, we batch them together, and then we compress them all into a zero-knowledge proof that we place onto Ethereum. And then anyone can validate that those transactions were done correctly without actually having to see the transactions off-chain. That's kind of the magic of zero-knowledge proofs. At the same time, we offer privacy. And the way that we offer privacy is that users have to encrypt their transactions locally and then send us a zero-knowledge proof. And so we don't really know what happened on a user's local machine, but then we take all of those individual user transaction proofs and bundle them up into a big, bigger zero-knowledge proof that we post onto the Ethereum network. So it's really a ZK-ZK rollup. There's a layer of ZKs on the user's machine to protect their privacy and encrypt their transaction before it leaves their machine. And there's another layer of ZKs that bundles all of those smaller ZKs up into a larger proof, and that provides the cost savings. So that's functionally what we do. We're trying to make Ethereum cheaper, and we're trying to make it private. It's the ZK that creates the privacy? Yeah, so there's two layers of ZKs. One is on your machine that creates the transaction privacy, and then there's another layer that encompasses all of the underlying ZKs, and that proves that all the underlying encrypted transactions happen correctly. It's a very succinct way to express all of the things that are happening off-chain. And could you try and explain ZK, like on five, just to help me understand how that works? Yeah, for sure. So a zero-knowledge proof, it's essentially a way to prove something without actually showing it. And so the analogy of how a ZK might work in the future is something like when you go to a club, you have to prove that you're 21, right? And the way that you prove that you're 21 at a club is you pull out your ID. And your ID has all your information on it. It has your birth date, it has your eye color, it has everything a driver's license has. And then how does the bouncer verify that you're 21? He basically does this simple subtraction in his head where he takes today's date and then he subtracts the date that you were born. And if the result was greater than 21, then you're let in. Now, the problem with that is now he knows everything about you. And even if we ignore all the other personal identifiable information that your bouncer gets access to, he at least definitely knows your birth date. What a zero-knowledge proof is, is essentially if there was a way to hand the bouncer a blob of math, essentially, that he could scan that verified for sure that you were 21 without having to expose the underlying information. That's functionally how a zero-knowledge proof works. And how it works kind of under the hood is these very fancy elliptic curves. And what the elliptic curves do is they encompass lots of underlying data. And there's this very interesting characteristic of elliptic curves where if you know the constraints of an elliptic curve, aka the formula of an elliptic curve, then you can prove that you know a large number of the underlying data points. And so for an n number of data points on a specific elliptic curve, there's only one curve that can run through every single one of those points. And so if you know the formula for the curve, then you're proving to someone like, I know all the underlying data because I'm able to describe the line that runs through all the underlying data. That's like the rough idea of ZKs. And to be frank, that's probably about the limit of my knowledge before we get into graduate level math and I start to look pretty foolish. So just to repeat what you said, just so I understand it. Number one is like, when we talk about L2s, we talk about rollups, what they're really doing is they're batching transactions, right? And then putting together and then tying it up and basically then putting it all on the blockchain at the same time, right? 
And the second part is like proving that this is actually legitimate is using your license analogy, where once you wrap it up, you put this wrapper around it and then you put the Z- Z- zero knowledge on top of it. And so when people take a look at that zero knowledge, they don't have to do actually look into the context of it. They know that, that whatever they said it was, was valid, right? Yes, correct. And so another way to think about this is there is a certain state of the universe, right? State T, and then there's a state T plus one. In the old world, I would need to see every single transaction input to validate that T transitions into T plus one. I need to see that like I sent you 50 bucks and you sent Andrew 20 and then Andrew sent Lee 10 and then I need to view every single transaction. In a roll-up world, in an optimistic roll-up, we basically say trust that the transition happened correctly. And then there's this network of fraud provers who look at the transition offline and they say, actually, something didn't happen correctly. And so they post a fraud proof on mainnet and then the system gets rolled back if something false happens. In a ZK context, we post state T and then we post state T1. And then we say, here's a blob of math that just for sure proves without a doubt that that transition is correct. You don't have to look at the underlying transactions at all. You just need to verify this blob of math. And if it validates, then based on this highly reliable trust assumption behind the zero-knowledge cryptography, the state transition happened appropriately. When you're describing those two scenarios, the first one you're describing, like when we hear about L2s that are optimism, right? That's the first scenario. And when you hear about ZK rollups, that's the second scenario, right? Yeah, exactly. Got it. All right. So then another term that I keep hearing a lot about is ZK snarks. What is that? Yeah, a snark is one family of cryptography. And to be frank, I think the technical details between snarks and starks is probably also not my area of expertise. But the TLDR in my head is that starks are quantum resistant and they're larger and they're, at least to date, seemingly more scalable. And Snarks are smaller, and I think there has been way more workplace behind snarks in recent times than starks. But I would say that that's kind of a a cryptography choice that has to do with essentially how large the proof that you're posting is. And so the snarks that we use are relatively lightweight, and so they can't contain as many transactions as, say, like a Starkware. But the trade-off there is Starkware has to wait longer to aggregate a larger number of transactions into each Stark. Got it. Okay, so... I'm just going to read what Aztec says who they are on the website, which is Aztec is a decentralized smart contract platform that supports groundbreaking use cases with privacy by default. We're not repeating the sins of Web2, centralization, censorship, and data oligarchies. So what does that mean? And what are the use cases does Aztec Network have? Yeah, I think to unpack some of the copy, I think what we're talking about is losing the ethos of the cypherpunk mentality, which is Essentially, that we should all have access to technologies that create autonomy and economic liberty. One of the big mistakes of Web2, one of the sins of Web2, was we decided to create this very, very small oligopoly, these small data oligopolies, right? The Googles, the Facebooks, the Apples of the world kind of control all the world's data. And we have these highly, highly trusted entities that control our entire digital lives. And maybe that's okay, right? Maybe in a benevolent dictatorship type environment, it'll be okay. And for a long time, I think it's worth double clicking on like Google's unofficial motto, don't be evil, right? And I think Chris Dixon likes to say this, can't be evil is better than don't be evil. The reason why I think Google took that moral ethos so seriously for a really long time, and I would interject, I think they've dropped that unofficial motto 
So let that be, a, you can interpret that as you will. But the reason why that was so important is because they really did have the responsibility, not only for individuals, but for all of society. And we're realizing now that that amount of data centralization and control means anyone can be deplatformed, anyone's livelihood can be taken away from them, anyone's privacy can be exposed at the whim of a single company. And so Web3 or crypto is meant to be a reaction to us straying away from values of economic liberty and independence. It's meant to say you can fully own your own data and you can not trust systems, but have systems that don't require trust, systems that rely on math to protect your privacy and to protect the fidelity of your economic life. And so what is Aztec trying to do? It's really just trying to add privacy to blockchain. Blockchain already fulfills many, many of these promises, right? We talked about the fact that it's transparent, it's trustless, it's permissionless, anyone can access it from anywhere, it's censorship resistant, the Ethereum network can't be shut down. And what it's missing is that it's still pretty expensive because all of this redundancy and trustlessness is expensive. And it's not private because of the way that it was designed. And so our goal really is to return the vision, the cypherpunk vision to individuals. And when we think about the most important use cases on Aztec, I still keep going back to the most basic. I think it is really tempting to come up with these really interesting pie in the sky crypto and web through use cases. And I'm happy to get into all of those. I think among other things, gaming and NFTs is really exciting in a private context. But the most basic use case is still the best, which is being able to transact money permissionlessly, cheaply and privately. And we're kind of most of the way there now, but not fully, right? Like an Ethereum transaction today on August 5th, 2022, a simple Ethereum transaction probably costs like 20 cents or something like that, which is not bad. I think people look at Ethereum and they say it's super expensive. Obviously, we're in a bear market. I'm looking at my gas meter right now and Ethereum gas is only 10 and the Ethereum price is still hovering around 1600. And so everything seems really cheap right now. But 20 cents is really not bad, especially for really large transactions. And that's a fixed cost, right? It only cost me 21,000 gas on Ethereum. I could send a million dollars on Ethereum and it's still going to cost me 20 cents to do so. I mean, I sent a wire, domestic wire last week for like an LP call for a fund and it cost me $25 and it took two days to settle. And so to be able to settle in a couple blocks, Ethereum blocks time in like 60 seconds for 20 cents, I think we're already pretty far along in terms of privacy. And we can talk about how the UX is not quite there yet, but I think we'll get there eventually. So to be able to just do that with privacy is huge. When I think about Aztec's user base, 60, 70% of our user base is ex-US and many, many in countries like China, Iran, Russia. I'll let you guys draw the lines between some of these countries, but maybe I'll say financial independence and censorship resistance is not really like a core principle of certain regimes. And so being able to give anyone on earth the ability to protect their livelihood and gain access to private stable payments, I don't actually think that's been done before. And I oftentimes challenge people to say, where can you do a private stable payment that's cross-border, that's open 24-7, that settles nearly instantaneously. Let's say on Aztec system right now, we're settling, we have some ways to scale, but we're settling every 30 minutes and that's accelerating. In the old system, it was settling once every four to six hours. I'm not sure where else in the world you can do that right now. And so we're still very, very excited about the core use case.
So on your website, there's there's links to ZK Money. Could you explain what ZK Money is? Yeah, so ZK.Money is our first-party DeFi aggregator. It started off as a private payments protocol, so you could create an Aztec alias and then be able to send funds privately within the network. And those funds are ETH, DAI, and we used to support RenBTC. We removed it just because not enough users were using it to make it sufficiently private. What we've done with our more recent release, Aztec Connect, which we launched last month, which, as the name implies, Aztec Connect connects our system to Ethereum DeFi. So it allows you to access things like curve swaps and element fixed rate yields and soon to come things like index co-op sets and swaps and other types of yield sources. It allows you to do anything on Ethereum DeFi with full privacy. And so now you've got yet another situation where you can access all the best services on Ethereum with complete discretion. And for now, it's a first party product. But over time, we're looking to return it to the community, open source it, and have many, many other people build front ends that allow folks to access Ethereum with privacy. Could you explain to me more of how that looks like as a user? So what does it look like as a user on like a DeFi product, right? You have a wallet, you connect, you put Ethereum in there, and people can see what your wallet has and how much money you have, right? What does that look like if you use Aztec Connect? So the way Aztec Connect works is it's basically a VPN for Ethereum. So you can think of Aztec Connect as basically like a smart contract wallet that controls a whole bunch of other users' wallets. So if you want to go do something on Ethereum, you tell Aztec Connect, hey, I want to go do a curve swap and I want to swap ETH for wrapped STETH, which is one of our integrations right now. And the roll-up contract will bundle you up with a bunch of other users who want to do the same exact thing. And then it will interact with Curve like an EOA or any other address. It interacts with it like a contract address. And so what you'll see on either scan is just Aztec Connect private rollup did a Curve swap. And so it's essentially a proxy for all user behavior. And because we bundled up a bunch of user actions off-chain, not only is it totally private, but we also offer you cost savings. So if 10 users want to use the swap, you roughly get a 1 over 10 cost saving. Got it. So if you're doing these things off chain, then does that exist on like a centralized server somewhere? Or how does that, this transaction work off chain? Yeah. So there is a centralized server right now that does all of the transaction sequencing. And so when you submit your order, essentially, the user action that you want to get done, there is a centralized rollup provider that receives these encrypted transactions, bundles them up, and then puts them on Ethereum mainnet. And for now, the reason why it's centralized is because we have many other things that we want to work on, including system security and integrations before we create backups. Now, the big question here is why not decentralize faster? One, Like I said, I think there are other bigger concerns that we have to deal with. This is very advanced cryptography. But the second, it's very, very hard to imagine censorship in the system, or at least censorship in any targeted way. There is a liveness consideration. And so someone, if the centralized server went down, then the system would stop publishing new blocks, which is problematic. I don't think there's any way to get around that liveness issues are troubling. But there's no way to like 51% attack the system or steal user funds as long as the cryptography works. There's no consensus attacks the way that there would be in a proof of stake system. So you've spoken before about how the market has affected just like the the hype cycles and the their markets has affected just the overall ecosystem of Web3. And you were talking about how there is an optimism in terms of building in Web3 right now. And could you expand on that a little bit? 
Oh, uh, you mean is or is not optimism? Sorry, I didn't is, hear you. There is an optimism, right? Yeah, I would say that I wasn't around for the last bear market, but my understanding from the last bear market was people were just exiting en masse. And I think there are a couple of reasons for why this time looks a little bit different. I think partially it's because it really felt like we were on the cusp of breaking through some of these experiments. And there are some very, very sticky creations, very, very sticky innovations from this cycle that clearly are valuable. And I think last cycle, it just like wasn't clear whether anything was going to work on Ethereum. Like, okay, cool, decentralized smart contracts. It dramatically increases the aperture of what's possible beyond Bitcoin, which is just decentralized money. Now you have like decentralized program, the world computer. These are all sweet words, but like I'm not seeing anything like super interesting. But this cycle, I think it's nearly undeniable that things like Uniswap, Compound, Aave, Maybe you would include things like DYDX or Yearn or Curve. There's like a subset of core DeFi primitives that span swapping, lending, yield, money markets. They're just going to be around. I mean, people find value from them. Decentralized lending is important. People need want and need access for it. Stable coins have like immense adoption that's not going down people still like to transact in decentralized stables. So I would say that there's just, at least for these core products, product market fit. And I would also say that there was a glimmer of hope for next generation use cases. NFTs clearly took off the cycle, right? There's something about NFTs, and I can't really explain what it is, that is just very durable. And I have to say, in the beginning, I didn't quite get it. In the beginning of NFTs, I was like, I'm not sure I understand this whole digital identity owning an avatar thing. But number one, I was clearly proven wrong. And it wasn't art, actually, the thing that was the thing that took off. It was avatars. It was PFP projects. And you could say it was speculative, but you could also say there's like, there really is a belonging community type product market fit thing happening, right? People really want to pay for this experience of community and common ownership and common identity. So I think we're just seeing that sometimes I listen to crypto haters and they try to prognosticate that people won't want crypto. And I'm like, there are many, many, many criticisms of crypto. I think you could like mark many of the plate earn schemes, like maybe just like wrapped DeFi Ponzi's. I think the jury's still out on whether that model works. There's lots of vaporware. There's it's unregulated. It's the Wild West. There's lots of hacks all the time. The UI is not there. Scalability is not there. Like these are all criticism that I would say are valid and are to be expected from an early ecosystem. But to say people don't want it, I think that's a crazy notion. People clearly do want it. People clearly do want crypto. And I think there's a question of whether they want it for speculative reasons, but I'm not really here to moralize about what the rationale is. I think people just genuinely want to participate in this ecosystem. I think it's our responsibility to make sure that projects don't screw people over. I think that's why I take my role as an educator very seriously. To be like, you really have to understand what you're investing in. And there's a big gap between projects that are real and projects that are not real. And sometimes it's hard to suss out. But I think it's just very obvious that there's some product market fit here. And I think that's why we're not seeing people leave en masse. You talked about being an educator. And I actually just wanted to mention, and we'll link this in the show notes, but everyone I know turned to you to have Luna UST explain to me. Same with Thrace. Same with C5. Your threads were incredibly educational, just understanding what was going on. How did you do the homework in order to really understand what was going on and explaining it? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think people ask me all the time, like, how long it takes me to create some of these threads. And the answer is, like, not very long. I don't mean to brag. They're not easy to do. 
But I think I've just built up so much infrastructure over the course of the last 18 months that when the news starts coming out, it's like relatively easy to synthesize. And part of it is because it's such an open collaborative environment. All of my analysis that I do is like 90% secondary sources, right? It's 90% secondary. I'm doing not a huge amount of primary research. Some of the on-chain work is already being done by invaluable members of the crypto Twitter community. I mean, a lot of the financial analysis work when I covered Voyager, I was actually going into Canada's version of SEC Edgar to like pull their financial statements and like, So yeah, there's a little bit of work there, but I would say that I feel pretty lucky to have been trained on Wall Street or private equity, whatever you want to call it, in a traditional financial context. And so I think I have some of the financial primitives in place to understand how decentralized finance builds itself up and unravels. And then also it's just pattern recognition. You see the same things happen over and over again. Luna, I had already covered twice previously, basically. Like I had already examined this model deeply and it had already failed once with Iron Titan. And so that lunar thread was already 90% written and I just had it in a folder somewhere and I just kind of pulled it out because I had already been thinking in February about Luna and I was like, I don't understand how this works. It just seems like Iron Titan, but just way, way, way bigger. Yeah, and also it's helpful to be addicted to Twitter and not mind being on it for like 12 hours a day. I think that's also really helpful if you want to get into a job, you know, covering DeFi. Yeah, your background is incredibly interesting because you've been in finance, you've been in PE, you've been been a co-founder. So you have this really like vibrant background to really pull upon, right? And so you were talking about how you saw the patterns of traditional finance in DeFi. And so a lot of this stuff was just a lot of pattern recognition. Could you just give an understanding for people that don't really understand what you mean by that to just give us a little bit of a summary by what you mean by that? Yeah, Matt Levine at Bloomberg, who I consider the GOAT business writer. I mean, for those of you who are not familiar with him, I'd be shocked if you're not, but he was an incredibly impressive guy. He was like Harvard, Yale Law School, worked at Wachtell, Goldman, and then straight up was like, I hate all this and quit and became a journalist. And now he's probably the greatest business journalist of our time. He says that DeFi is learning in a couple of years what it took traditional finance thousands of years to learn. And that's what I think is beautiful about DeFi is it's a financial ecosystem that's being built by programmers and engineers. And they're looking at things from first principles. And it's worth saying they're looking at things outside of the lens of regulatory distortion. Like Wall Street very much is a product of not only financial innovation, but regulatory pressure. And so it has evolved in a very specific way. And DeFi hasn't. But like the core ideas of how money works, right, for a currency to be backed for basic microeconomic supply and demand variables, like what yield is. Honestly, finance is almost like physics, right? There are these simple equations and formulas that are the foundation of any economic system. And so that's another reason why I find it funny when crypto skeptics say stuff like, oh, well, crypto violates all the fundamental rules of finance. You know, finance is science and crypto is like bullshit. No, crypto belongs to the same universe. It has the same physics. Finance is finance. Money is money at the end of the day. It just so happens that crypto is designed a little bit differently because it has different constraints, right? It's like physics, but we're like on Mars, right? Like we're still in the same universe. It just happens that some of the inputs are a little bit different. Gravity is like a lot lower all of a sudden and like there's no atmosphere. The fundamental physical constraints like still exist. And so I think that's what I mean. Every time I got confused by something in DeFi, it was helpful to return to 
at rock bottom, like how does this core principle work? What actually is going on here? Yeah, that's basically what I mean by some of these concepts are portable between traditional finance and DeFi. This is a pretty interesting concept because I think for a lot of people that got into crypto, especially over the last 12, 18 months, there is a disconnect of what, to your point, John, about seeing the patterns in history repeating itself. That's why so many of us are fans of history, but also the expectation or lack thereof of people coming in, right? Like there's this promise of this amazing new system that is not bound by traditional regulation, traditional rules, but a lot of people don't know what that even means, right? And so when things break, they're like, what the hell just happened? Like, I thought this was supposed to be idyllic solution for everyone. And I think there's a huge disconnect there. And that's where right now, unfortunately, you see all these people losing their shirts and not really understanding why or blaming it on a lot of the bad actors in the system. So, you know, building off that, I was curious, you did answer this question for me earlier about privacy. You described what that means to Aztec and what you guys are providing. Just going back to what we were just talking about, what is, in your mind, for example, things that as you're looking at the space now, whether it's what Aztec is building or what is currently the standard, what are some things that you think are still perhaps fundamentally broken? And maybe there's parallels to TradFi or maybe just simply, in your mind, different solutions or different current processes that are still fundamentally going to cause a lot of growing pains or need to be overcome in order to deliver that kind of promise that perhaps a lot of people are looking for. Yeah, there's many, many, and we've touched on a couple. One is scalability right? With any moderate amount of use, Ethereum becomes just ridiculously expensive. And so I don't think we're there yet in terms of cost effectiveness if we want this to be a global financial system. So scalability, we talked about privacy. Privacy is a really tough problem to solve, not only from a technical perspective, but in terms of a systems design perspective. We haven't really thought about how private blockchain systems are going to work. And that's a big part of what Aztec is working on, right? Right now, we're just a privacy layer. It's much, much easier to conceive of privacy in a universe where it's just a privacy layer. It's Compound with privacy. It's Uniswap, but with privacy. That makes a lot of sense, but we're eventually going to work toward a private compute paradigm where there's going to be private smart contracts, right? And so if there's a private smart contract, and let's say it's bilateral, and it's like me and Lee enter into a smart contract agreement, and we make a bet, and nobody else can see the bet, but we put the bet on chain. So we know that it'll execute under certain conditions. First of all, that's really cool. That notion doesn't really exist anywhere else, right? This idea of an escrow that will execute under very specific on-chain conditions, and we know it will deterministically, and it has 100% uptime, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also private to everyone else, but me and Lee. On the other hand, that means only you and I are going to audit it and maybe our contract lawyers or whatever. And so privacy reintroduces some old world notions, right? Because we're in a public blockchain paradigm, we oftentimes say smart contracts are expensive, but they're cheaper than lawyers. Well, once private transactions come into play again, you might need smart contract lawyers. Like you might need someone to review the contract on both sides and be like, I actually like don't agree with this provision. I would like to like argue that. And that's very specific to a private paradigm. So it'll take some time for us to reprogram our brains the same way I think people had to reprogram their brains going from Bitcoin to Ethereum, which is just like, wow, there's just a gigantic universe of things to do beyond just decentralized money. And now there's like smart contracts and programs and applications. By the way, there's many of these. So I'll try to hit on the biggest ones. Um, I think the UX is still really, really challenging right? Self-custody is still really challenging. And what I tell people, and I think people who are way more OG than me say, is like, if you can't stomach self-custody, then don't use crypto. Because 
pseudo-custodial solutions are not ready for prime time. And wrappers for crypto are really the worst of all worlds. I said this about Celsius. That's really a worst of all world solution. You get all the volatility and degeneracy of DeFi, but you get all the opaqueness of centralized finance as well. And so you kind of need, at least in the current paradigm, you need transparency, you need self-custody. And once you take those things away, you get into situations where, what was the point of this whole thing? The whole point of this whole thing was economic liberty. The whole point of this thing was financial autonomy. But if you're just handing it off to somebody anyway, then why not just use the traditional banking system? Then we're just in it because someone promised you like 10% degen yields. Dude, you could get 10% degen yields, go buy like some Section 8 housing, right? Like in Brooklyn or something. You'll get degen yields there. Go lend money to the country of Argentina. There's some fucking degen yields there. You know, you can just bake in more risk to anything and get more yield. The game is not about yield, right? The game is about economic liberty. It's about financial autonomy. But where seed phrases are not ready for prime time, right? This Solana hack where like people, slope wallet users had all their seed phrases exposed because of some event reporting system that they wrongly implemented. That's really tough. You're still relying on a developer somewhere to make sure that they're not exposing your secrets. So I think the UX is not there either. I think those are three major ones in my mind. There's probably others, but yeah, I would probably stick to scalability, privacy, and then UX and the self-custody paradigm. Quick question on that. Like in terms of the privacy, again, parallels to TradFi, a lot of what current rules and regulation allow for, people will try their best to circumvent, right? Or to find the way to do something. If there's a gray zone, they'll find it. Can you talk a bit about, and just helping me understand, like when you're providing privacy, you know, also, I guess, what are the potential downsides, right? How can people, how can this be used for evil? We talk about how do we prevent people from doing things in a bad way or that cannot be then either validated or is the data still somehow accessible when it needs to be, right? If it's done off chain, I was a little bit confused earlier about how it's stored through, I guess, using cryptography to have it stored somewhere for now. But what is like the long-term solution to that? Yeah, so the state of our system is encrypted UTXOs. And so it's an encrypted note system. It's a big Merkle tree, which is a data storage structure that holds the entire state of everything that you own. And nobody can see what's in that tree, not Aztec, not anyone else. Only the person who holds the viewing key for your specific assets, which is you, can view your assets. But you can't see the rest of the tree without also having those people's viewing keys. And there's no way for us to backdoor that. We can't collect your viewing keys. I mean, if we implemented software that essentially did what Slope did, which sent us all the viewing keys at the moment of generation, then we could. But the goal is to have a piece of open source software that clearly shows it's not doing that. So I think you're asking a very important question around this privacy contradiction or privacy paradox, which is like, everybody wants the benefits of privacy, but wants revelation when it's necessary, right? And in my mind, there's no real in-between. And we could talk about how our system could potentially offer an in-between. But you either get ironclad privacy where you get full discretion or you don't. And I think that's not a decision for crypto to make. I think that's a decision for society and our democracy to make, which is let's weigh the cost and benefit of having total ironclad privacy in which nobody can see what you're doing, right, including the authorities and a universe in which nobody can see what you're doing except when it's really important, right? But where is the line for when it's really important? I remember during those San Bernardino shootings, right, those like terrorist shootings like back in the day and maybe like 10 years ago, the FBI called Apple and they were like, 
you need to backdoor us into all Apple devices. And they were like, why? And he's like, are you supporters of terrorism? Because a terrorist act happened. And if we don't get this data, then we're never going to be able to catch terrorists again. And I think Apple easily could have folded there. This is what I mean by trust, right? Apple easily could have been like, yep, here's the backdoor. Just take all the information forever. Now, to Apple's credit, they didn't. And the FBI actually hacked it anyway using like a zero day or something like that. But Apple stood pretty firm there to say, actually, no, user privacy is more important than figuring out what was on this terrorist phone, what was on this terrorist device. Ultimately, there is a calculus that we have to make on the level of human rights, right? And we make these moral trade-offs, these utility trade-offs all the time. Our democracy in the United States has determined that we just need guns and we want guns, right? Guns are, number one, they're enshrined. And number two, we have no desire to unenshrine guns. And if that means kids have to die and people get shot up in malls, that's okay because we have the freedom to own guns, right? And that's a calculus we actively make. And I think we need to look at privacy the exact same way, which is, is it worthwhile for everyone to have discretion on some level over their financial lives or is it not? And again, People sometimes look at crypto and be like, well, they're not solving this question. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a difficult philosophical question to solve, which is like, what are the costs and benefits of privacy? The long and short of it is, I don't think this is specific to crypto privacy projects. And we don't look at Signal and we don't say Signal can't exist. Somebody's dealing drugs on Signal. Yeah, for fucking sure. Someone's dealing drugs on Signal. But we recognize that the value of privacy for society at large is worth like someone buying weed on Signal, right? We clearly think that's valuable enough to justify some like unknown risk. I will add, though, that this is another area in which snarks and ZKs can play a role, which is to prove something without revealing it. And I'll give you an example of KYC identity, right? Similar to our bouncer and club analogy of someone trying to get into a club. You can imagine a situation in which the FBI says, did you send an order to interact with any blacklisted contract on Ethereum using Aztec Connect? Now, the historical way you would prove this, like on Ethereum, right? On Ethereum, you would just be like, yeah, just look at all my transaction history and you can see everything I've interacted with. Not ideal. But in this case, you can create a membership tree or two membership trees, right? One which is a no good person membership tree and one that's like a good person membership tree. And the no good person membership tree, you actually enter that membership tree if you've touched any blacklisted addresses. And the good membership tree is like if you haven't touched any blacklisted addresses. And then you don't actually have to reveal anything that you've ever done. You don't have to reveal the amounts or which contract you interact with or anything. You really don't have to reveal any of that stuff. But you do kind of show your membership, which tree do you belong to? Do you belong to the tree of people who touch bad things or the tree of people who didn't touch bad things? Now, the critical thing here is we don't consider this censorship because we can't control that. We can't build that system. We can't enforce your usability depending on your membership status. But a third party could, right? A third party could go in and say, we're going to request that you activate this tracking system And that, like, if you touch anything bad, it'll alert us that you touch something bad. We can't stop the federal government from putting a gun to your head and being like, hey, you're going to need to expose some amount of your privacy. And again, that's where I would point to our democracy and society. Like, if we really care about privacy, then we need to rely on our democracy to determine this is not something that we want. Our goal at Aztec is to say you can't put a gun to Aztec's head. 
At some point, Aztec is going to be fully decentralized and anyone around the world can use it. And if you happen to live in a sovereign state that really doesn't like that, then that's your relationship with your sovereign state. If you don't like it, move to a different sovereign, move to a different jurisdiction. But it's not a relationship we have any interest in mediating. And that's kind of also what we mean by the sins of Web 2, right? By definition, Apple, Google, and Facebook are the only thin layer of protection between that's mediating the relationship between you and your sovereign, right? They don't need to put a gun to your head at all, ever. They can just put a gun to Apple's head, and if they give you up, like, you're done. So I wanted to take this opportunity because you're from the traditional finance world and you understand a lot of these traditional finance concepts and you just do such a great job of really explaining and simplifying concepts for us. I wanted to frame this question in the frame of Asset Connect. And so when someone is using Asset Connect and they're incorporating and using these DeFi projects, like what are some of the things that people can do with DeFi? Because you mentioned some things like swap and things like that. Like what are some of the things that people can do And what does it actually mean? Yeah, so for now, all of our integrations are pointed at stuff you can already do on Ethereum, but that protects your privacy. It protects who you are, your identity, and it protects the amounts that you're transacting with so that you have complete discretion over your on-chain activity. And so it's all the basic stuff like swaps and lending. But there are new privacy paradigms that have yet to be explored that Aztec Connect will enable. So we are working with a startup called Medici that is doing private DAO treasury management, and private DAO voting. And so one of the current on-chain voting paradigms is we track votes publicly because there's no option to track them privately. And so one thing that Asset Connect can enable is off-chain voting that is totally provable through a ZK snark. And so you can imagine a situation where private on-chain votes essentially exist for the first time ever. And this prevents all kinds of weird distortions. There are these 11th hour voting problems when you have public voting. For instance, if I think I have a certain level of voting power and I think I have more than my opponent, then it behooves me to kind of wait until the actual 11th hour, watch how many votes they're able to submit, and then I'm just going to submit more votes at the very last minute. Or I'm going to call all my friends offline and be like, hey, we need to like drum up all these votes. There's a reason why voting is private, right? You get things like voter intimidation and bribing and We treat bribing like it's like a feature of blockchains. And maybe it is, right? Maybe voting is a feature, but it just adds a slightly different layer to the game. Whereas private voting is just a completely different paradigm. Private NFTs are also something we haven't seen. The private NFT problem is really hard to think about because if you think about an NFT, it's unique, it's non-fungible. And so you should be easily be able to see where it goes. But if at the moment of purchase, you use a proxy, like Aztec to purchase an NFT, then nobody knows who bought it. If it says Aztec Connect roll-up contract purchased Azuki1257, then like who bought it? Who knows? And those, the ownership of that NFT is eminently tradable and sendable inside Aztec privately. That's just a UTXO note that asserts that you own that NFT. So I can send my Azuki to you, Will, privately. And it's not Actually, the Azuki itself, the Azuki still sits in one place on a layer one smart contract. But the IOU, the coupon, the ticket that says, like, I own it, gets transferred to you. And so you can have an offline private market, even a P2P market for NFTs that hasn't existed before. And you can have blind auctions and you can have people accruing NFTs without having to signal that they own them, right? Now, a lot of the game right now is signaling. It is letting people know that you own a certain NFT. But as we know from the Bored Ape community, and not to pick on them, it's also a security problem when people know that you own a certain NFT. And it's not great for 
literally the entire nation of North Korea to be targeting you because you own like 50 Azukis. Way better to be like, you have no idea who I am, no idea who purchased them. I'm in it to be an investor. I'm in it to be a collector. If you ask art collectors in the traditional world, right, they really prize discretion. In fact, they use proxies as a rule in auction houses. Like billionaires don't show up at Sotheby's and raise the flag or whatever when they put in a bid. They use proxies because they don't want to know who's buying these things. So we think that's super important too. And checking out ZK Money. And so effectively, like, so how people would use it is you tie in your wallet and then I think it generates the keys needed for proof. And then you can request a transaction, just as you were saying, John, let's say I wanted to swap something then that transaction would be turned into a proof that sits on your centralized server, which eventually will decentralize, is what I'm hearing. But it's encrypted, so no one can really tell anyways if they were trying outside of having the key. And then the transaction would be made on your behalf by Aztec, and then it would need to come back into the system. And then the system is the one determining then like who actually owns it. Like the ZK, the Aztec system. Is that all true? Yeah, you nailed it. Okay, so then this isn't a leading question that's a plan. Like, why wouldn't everybody use it then? Wouldn't everybody just want to be private? So do people just not know about it? Or are there also downsides? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, one, I don't think sufficient number of people know about it. And so everyone should obviously go to ZK.money and use it. But there are distinct reasons why we think growth is limited and we actively limit it. Number one, we have a five ETH limit on deposits right now. And that is just a way for us to throttle our own growth because of security considerations. This is highly experimental cryptography. And so we ask users to treat it like alpha or beta software. It's highly experimental. It's been audited by third parties and our own cryptography and engineering teams have spent over six months auditing the software. But it's not like Ethereum. Ethereum has been around for five years. It's super battle tested. It's experienced all kinds of attacks. It's experienced an entire network hard fork and it works. Aztec Connect, the most recent version of our cryptography system, just launched a month ago. And so it's pretty new. It's pretty new. The second thing is that it's not fully synchronous with Ethereum. So we wait for a bunch of transactions to come into our offline system before we batch them up. And then after we batch them up, a big proof needs to be generated, which takes like a couple minutes. And then it gets posted onto Ethereum mainnet to finalize that transaction. And so there is some latency for you to get onto Ethereum. It's not a ridiculous amount of latency. I mean, I would guess that during normal Ethereum periods, not now, but during normal Ethereum periods, the settlement time for a transaction is on the order of minutes. You're waiting for block inclusion. You set average gas and it kind of just waits. And then at a certain time, hopefully it gets in. Sometimes it doesn't and you wait a little longer. But I would say you wait a couple minutes. The problem with latency in our system is that because it kind of takes a little bit of time for the transaction to get included, composability is a little bit more challenging on Aztec Connect. And so it's not like you can read the existing Ethereum mempool in a block and say, hey, I want to get ahead of this transaction. That's not really possible because the timing of when the proof is posted is not really determined. It's some period of time where the proof has to be generated and then it gets published onto Ethereum. Eventually, we're going to move to our own execution system, essentially our own network, where all the apps will be able to be composable in one environment. And then this problem goes away. That'll be in the medium to long term. But for now, let's say you're an ARB trader, right? It would be really challenging for you to use Aztec Connect. It would be really challenging. And 
for better or worse, a lot of Ethereum's volume is still programmatic. And so programmatic use cases are a little bit challenging. High latency or at least latency intensive or applications that require very fast latency are a little bit more difficult as well. Imagine a volatile swap where I'm swapping, you know, ETH for DAI and the price of ETH is just like plummeting as it often does these days. Waiting five minutes could give you a dramatically different settlement price. And so all of our efforts are about speeding up the roll-up and lowering the latency to mainnet. Got it. Yeah, that's super helpful. So effectively, still testing it out in terms of holding large amounts of value, but also you need to act fast depending on what you're doing. There are potentially issues. I actually don't... What does composability mean in this? Or yeah, what does composability mean to you? And, And it is the only effect of composability issues on speed. So I think of composability as being able to string together multiple actions, right? I want to do a flash loan from Aave that then puts in a bunch of money into Uniswap to provide LP for a single tick because I see a transaction go through and then withdraw it immediately after someone makes a really large trade, right? I think of that as composability and synchronous composability being like, I know for sure that this is going to be executed deterministic fashion. So that's what I think of when I think of composability. And we don't really have that type of synchronous composability within Asset Connect. Once the Asset Connect transaction goes on to Ethereum mainnet, then it is synchronous with everything that's happening on Ethereum mainnet. But your instruction offline, there's some latency before it hits Ethereum, if that makes sense. Got it. Yeah. So that there's latency, but also composability is kind of your ability to put together multiple requests effectively or have them depend on each other. Yes, exactly. I see. So I'd love to also hear, are there other privacy companies you respect and why those certain companies are admirable to you? I actually think Tornado is worth talking about. I think they have a very bad reputation as a mixer. And I think it's because it happens to be like the exclusive domain of hackers. Like hackers, every time something gets hacked, it goes straight to Tornado, right? And so I think it has a very, very, very bad reputation And I think it's a reputation by association and not by value. In reality, Tornado is very privacy preserving. And we're not a mixer, but I think if it didn't have such a negative association with hacks, I think we would think differently about it. And part of the reason why I think it has such a negative reputation with hacks is, number one, it's very secure and robust. And so in terms of complexity, it's like many orders of complexity less complex than our system. And so everyone can see how it works. It's really simple to use. And it's really expensive. Costs over a million gas to go in and out of Tornado, which is nowadays it's not that expensive, but it could have been many hundreds of dollars during the bull market. And not many people can afford to pay $500 for privacy. And it's really, really difficult to use privacy. It's like not programmable in any way. It's really a single use application where you move funds from wallet A to wallet B. You can't do private sends. I know they have Tornado Nova, but at least Tornado Classic, you can't do private sends. There's no DeFi functionality. There's nothing you can do but just very expensively mix funds from address A to address B. But I still think that they laid the foundation for an important utility, right? Which is ironclad privacy. And I think we look at that and we say, wow, what an awful thing. We're like enabling hackers. But I think that happens to be just a coincidence. Hackers don't use Aztec, right? In fact, most of our users are small ball users from India and China and Iran and other places around the world. And so I still respect the fact that they were really trailblazing. They made a very robust technology that works. It happens to be really expensive. It's very unfortunately like used by bad actors, 
but it really works. And there's a lot of other privacy projects out there right now who are kind of running at the same space that we are. I can't say I'm like totally up to speed on everything that's going on in their ecosystems, but to name names like Alio is another team that we're very familiar with and I think have a great reputation in the industry. But yeah, there are a number of folks running toward the same outcome. It feels like one of the reasons why right now that hackers aren't going to use ASIC is because you have a five-limit ETH, right? And so if you're stealing hundreds of millions of dollars, they can't privately do that. But can you just, for the audience, for people that don't know what a mixer is or what Tornado does, can you just give a quick summary of what they do and how hackers are using them? Yeah, so Tornado essentially allows you to put funds into their system and then issue a receipt to you It's a UTXO note, I believe, that's kind of a similar architecture to us that allows you to redeem your funds at a later date. And then it disassociates the redeemer from the issuer. So it's just a very, very simple, robust way to allow you to place funds privately into a vault and then withdraw it from anyone as long as you essentially have the viewing and spending key. You have the object that grants you the right to withdraw the funds. So it's depositing, you get a withdrawal receipt, And then that withdrawal receipt can be redeemed from like any other address at a later date. And so all hackers are doing is just doing that to disassociate the address that hacked the funds to wherever they want to send their money. So if you hacked like a billion dollars, I don't know how you'll ever, ever get that out. But if you hack a large sum of money, then you can send it to arbitrary addresses through Tornado Cash, paying a huge amount of money each time to obscure where the funds are coming from and then withdraw them. Going back to the challenges that you talked about with Aztec, challenges in terms of just what y'all are focused on, which of those are you trying to address first? Are you trying to pressure test the cryptography? Or are you working on the delay? What are y'all most focused on? Actually, the thing that we're most focused on right now is just improving the utility. There's still loads of stuff that you can do with a little bit of latency that people are clearly willing to do. And so we're like one of the top 20 holders of WST ETH already. And so people are clearly willing to do this stable swap or like-kind asset swap between ETH and WST ETH. And we represent a significant amount of elements Divault use using our bridge. And so clearly there's appetite for incremental usage of protocols once privacy is enabled. And so actually the thing we're working on most is just more utility. Not everybody wants to do a single asset swap on Curve. Not everybody wants stable yields on Element. but People want to potentially deposit on Yearn. People potentially want to do other like-kind swaps on Curve. And so being able to enable more of these general use use cases is our top priority for now. And then soon, the other thing is improving our security and the user experience. We're going to be incorporating native Ethereum signatures. And so you'll be able to sign things using an Ethereum signature, which will improve the security and usability of our system. And then, of course, in the background, we're working on the long-term system, which will enable private smart contracts. And that's really the future state that we want to get to. Awesome. And then do a callback of what you started this with. What has been one of your favorite growth memes or what is your favorite growth meme that you put up? Man, that is a tough one. I really like Privacy Summer. We haven't been pushing it as hard recently, but in the beginning of the summer, this idea of there was DeFi Summer, there was NFT Summer, and now there's Privacy Summer. I've really enjoyed that. And it comes with a very relevant sunglasses emoji face. And so it kind of has a nice dual meaning there. Brad. You've really grown a a big following on Twitter and a lot of people know who you are. How did you grow your audience in that way? Yeah, I think it's a lot of it is luck. 
I think something that's unknown about my Twitter following is that 80 or 90% of it came from five tweets. And so a lot of it was being right place, right time and having the right narrative and the right coverage. I remember the day of Luna, it was actually kind of a busy day at work. And I was just like, wow, what's going on here? And kind of hours were going by and nobody was covering it. And I'm like, am I going to have to do this today? Like, am I going to have to actually pull out this archived tweet from February and retailer it a little bit? And I did it and it took off. And it just happened to be because nobody wanted to do it. Nobody literally wanted to do the work of covering it. So I think that's happened a couple times with Luna and Celsius and the first tweet that put me on the map covering like Faye Protocol. And then there were a couple more organic ones that are just great stories, right? I told a story about how I interviewed with Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos. I told a story about how I interviewed a North Korean hacker. Those are just really fun, great stories. And in some ways, those are more satisfying than the news coverage stuff because it's not timely. It's just like somebody's like, wow, this is a very entertaining story and made my day. And those are always really fun. But I would say being right place, right time and I'm sure you guys are familiar with this as well. Virality is very strange. There are plenty of times where I think I've written a banger and it goes nowhere. And other times where I'm shocked, truly shocked at the amount of traction that something has. And it just goes to show like you don't know what your customers and your audience are thinking. You got to kind of be fast on your feet and give the people what they want. Since you brought up the North Korean interview, could you just tell us the story? Yeah, for sure. I was actually in the London office of Aztec and I was doing an interview and we do these pre-interview screens and I was looking at this guy's resume and the interview had already been scheduled and it looked like kind of a normal resume but kind of two weird things stood out one he had a cover letter which like nobody does anymore and two the cover letter was kind of generic and weird but then it ended with the world will see a great result for my hands which is Probably the greatest Aztec meme, even though it wasn't really an Aztec meme. For a week, a lot of people were tweeting, the world will see a great result from my hands. And it was just so comically Bond villain-esque that it just immediately raised red flags. And then to top it off, his name was Bobby Sierra. Famously, his name was Bobby Sierra. His name, I put that in quotes because obviously it was fake. I started the interview and it's just blatantly a Korean guy with his camera off who can barely speak English. (laughs) really, really pushing me to like get a smart contract engineering job. And I start just asking really basic questions about his resume, where he's based. It's full of inconsistencies. Clearly, their scam operation is not well-oiled because I asked him where he was based. He was based in Hong Kong, but the resume said Canada. I asked him where he worked last. He was like a German company, but actually it was like a mining pool company. So it's just full of inconsistencies. And I remember at one point I asked him a question about one of these and he just muted his microphone for like two minutes. And so I was like, hello, hello. And he was just gone for two minutes. And I like to imagine this was a North Korean call center. By the way, I feel bad for these guys because if the U.S. Treasury is to be believed, North Korea basically puts a gun to these people's families and then ships them around the world. This guy could very well have been in Hong Kong, but they ship these guys around the world and try to get them software engineering jobs where they might get paid like a couple hundred thousand dollars to do like smart contract work for blockchain organizations. And then they take 90% of their salary. So they're just, we're going to pay you what you would have been paid being a peasant in North Korea or whatever. And the rest of the money is going to go to fund nuclear weapons. So I feel bad for these guys, but I like to think that the whole time he was freaking out. Every time he went on mute, he was turning around to his North Korean supervisor and just being, bro, I don't know what's going on here. 
I'm freaking out. This guy's calling me on all this stuff that I don't know. I think you gave me the wrong resume. And then his boss being like, chill, just get back on and ask for the job again. And he comes back on and he asks for the job. And then I point out another inconsistency and he's like, oh shit. And he goes on mute and he's like, hey, I'm really struggling here, you know? So it was just a very comical scene, but at the same time, super terrifying. I saw today on Twitter that another blockchain project got targeted by Lazarus Group. It was a spear phishing attack where this is a great attack vector. They sent everyone in the company an update of on their salaries. And it said salary update 2022 with a PDF. And then the PDF was password protected. And then there was a TXT file that said password.txt. It's like so many <laughs> layers of hilarity where it's just, number one, you're so excited to see your salary update. The salary update's password protected, but the password is in a plain text file that's been sent in the same zip. And so then you're like, oh, I got to know what I'm getting paid this year. So then you just open that and immediately your whole system's infected and like Lazarus has stolen all of the private keys that you have stored in plain text on your machine. So anyway, the, clearly these hackers are sophisticated. They're taking all kinds of attack vectors, both malicious and non-malicious. Like this guy might not have been trying to do a supply chain attack. He might have literally just been trying to get a job to funnel the money back to North Korea. Yeah, just a crazy, crazy life experience. Well, hold on, hold on. Before we move on, I haven't read this tweet, but so his camera was off. And he's supposed to be a Caucasian yes. man, Bobby Sierra. Did you ask him why he couldn't turn his camera on for an interview? Yes, I obviously asked him why he couldn't get the camera on. <laughs> and he didn't really have a coherent response, which is an immediate red flag, right? And there was a point in the interview, there were many cycles, right? In the beginning, it was just, I'm putting up with this. This seems like just an incompetent dude. Then it turned to, whoa, this guy might be like a North Korean hacker. I want to stay on the line because this is hilarious. And then it turned to like, wait, this guy's definitely a North Korean hacker. I need to get off the line before something bad happens. And so it was a real arc. That's crazy. So actually, just follow up on Will's question, building your audience. You mentioned earlier about the corpus of information and sources that you built over the last only 18 months, right? Can you give us a little insight into how you did that and perhaps some resources for people that are looking to either, I guess as a beginner, I'm sure there's levels to this, right? There's beginner, where do we go? And then there's more intermediate and more advanced. And just real quickly run through kind of like how you did that and maybe some tips for people that are trying to up their game. Yeah, I would say like start really slow and start with people who are known to be high signal, right? And for me, some of the goats, I mean, I'm sure I'm forgetting a whole ton. But some of the goats are Kobe, I think, is a goat. Vitalik is a goat. Arthur Hayes is a goat. These are just the known best writers. Some of the top traders, I think, are really important to follow. Some of the top VCs are really important to follow. And you just start with five or 10 people. And I'm up to 1,500 followers now. And they're just people I've met in the industry. And they're my friends now. And I like to see what they're up to. But for sure, the signal is lower than when I was just following 50 people. So start with like 10 or 20. And you'll immediately see, is this person high value or low value? If they're high value, go to them and see who do they follow. This is like the 12th grade English essay trick, right? You find one source and then you go to the bibliography of that source and then you take all of those and then you go to the bibliographies of those sources and like, okay, that you've got all your sources. You know, you don't really have to look super hard. By the way, I'm pretty sure this is how science is done in 2022. So yeah, I would say that's my primary advice. I think people are not aware of how powerful Twitter is. And this is the really hard part. I had some buddies in New York, this guy, Blake Johnson, who co-founded Crypto NYC, and this guy, Nick Churls, who runs Notation Capital here, who were just way more OG than me. And we're on a little signal group, and they just send me tweets. And they say, what do you think of this? 
And so that's a really tough part. I think it's hard to break in cold. Find someone that you think is relatively credible who's a friend of yours and don't take everything they say as God's word, especially not financial transactions. Definitely take any time someone tells you to buy or sell something with a gigantic grain of salt. In fact, I would say don't trust it at all. Never take someone's word for when to buy and sell something. You have to formulate your own opinions, but definitely use them for who do you find helpful. And I think it's really important to find folks who are unbiased. And it's very hard to do, right? A lot of the folks that I mentioned have their own biases. But that's also why my last piece of advice is follow traders. I don't think traders have a very good reputation in this space because they're seen as mercenary and VCs and builders are seen as fighting the good fight because they're actually creating the value. But they're super biased by their bags. Like VCs and builders are hyper biased by their bags and that makes them incredibly intellectually dishonest. Whereas traders, they're just in it to make a buck. They don't care how they make a buck. They don't care whether Cardano's real or not. They don't care whether the Ethereum merge is going to happen in third quarter or fourth quarter. They're just there to make positive EV bets. And I actually think that's what makes people who are traders or who have trader-like mentalities much more honest about the state of the space. Is there anything else that we haven't covered yet that you'd like to talk about? I think not today, but I would say that maybe just in general... It's weird. There's like, it's a total ghost town. This is my first bear market. Nobody's engaging with any crypto. And I think it's really easy for everything to look like bullshit in the bear and everything to look like it's going to change everything in the bull. And the truth is somewhere in between. And so I would say the advice that my last shot for anyone listening here is not to get too biased by the current market environment. Right now, it feels like actually everything's a scam and crypto is totally useless and it'll never create anything of value. And there's just thousands of people silently writing code and building stuff for the next bull market. And you don't see that because none of the shillers are out. Nobody's on podcasts being, oh my God, this new play to earn thing is the fastest growing company of all time. Or, oh, this ZK project just launched mainnet and has like a billion dollars of TVL already. None of that stuff's happening, right? Because everyone's chilled on this asset class for the time being. And I would say have a perspective that's broader than what's happening this week. Have a multi-year perspective. And if you look at that multi-year perspective and you're still bearish somehow, then, okay, you've clearly convinced yourself that despite the many, many cycles crypto has gone through that it's going to go to zero, then, okay, I respect that. But don't get too caught up in the day-to-day. This is a very long journey. As someone who works for an organization with complex technology, this stuff takes time to build and audit and make safe. John, thank you so much. I think we all can say we've learned so much from you. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, guys. Real pleasure. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening until the end. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It'll help more people like you find us. You can find more about us on wild.show, W-L-D.S-H-O-W. Please subscribe to our newsletter or DM us on Twitter. We'd love to get to know you. 